Today we're going to begin by reading the words of Zechariah from the Gospel of Luke, starting at chapter 1, verse 67. You can find that on your table, in your table Bible, on page 1018, 1018. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting at verse 67. Zechariah has just become aware that he's going to be a daddy, even though he's a little too old for that. And so, these are the words he says. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will, be, will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Of course, Zechariah was speaking of his son, who would be known as John the Baptist. So last week, we tried to get a grasp on the eternal nature of God the Son, Jesus. Since our plan for the next several months is to look at the life of Jesus, we need to go to a place beyond time as we understand it in order to really grasp who Jesus is. Because the Jesus we know is God, the Son, who became flesh and dwelt among us, and who is still in his flesh, sitting in the throne room of God. And so the question that I feel like has to be answered today, or at least attempted to answer today, is why would God do that? Why would God give up in the person of the Son his eternal riches his eternal nature, his place in heaven at the side of his entire nature, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, why would he come and dwell among us, die, rise from the grave, and then forever be confined to our kind of existence even after the resurrection? Well, when you're trying to understand anybody's motives, it's tricky, isn't it? Every one of us can relate to this because when you're trying to understand motives, it's, it's always about understanding what they're 
driving force is that causes them to do or say the things they do. And we have to kind of be like detectives, really. We have to know the difference between causation and correlation, for one thing. Now, this is something that's a very popular use of terminology among certain professions, but correlation is basically the idea that if certain things usually happen when as certain conditions exist, then that may be a correlation. Causation is a fact. It means that when you do X, you always get Y. Now, when we're talking about human nature and even the divine nature, and we're trying to understand the motives of another person, even God, well, then we can't really do causation which means we have to look for the correlations and then try to come to an educated conclusion. Thus, it's a detective job. But I'm gonna argue before I get started that with God, you're gonna actually see causation. That you're actually gonna see that wherever God says if, there's always a then, and there's the connection. That wherever God says if, the then will happen. As long as the if happens. So that's where we're going to go with this. Why would God become flesh and dwell among us? In the book of Exodus, the Lord describes himself to Moses one time when they were meeting on the mountain saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So God says this while he and Moses are meeting up on the mountaintop and down in the valley, the people have become impatient with God and be impatient with Moses and they've become fearful and so they've collected all the gold in the camps and they've created a God of their own, a golden calf. So God talks of his mercy and his faithfulness to them even while they, some, are turning their backs on God. No wonder then, just a few verses later, Moses says to God, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. And at that moment, God reminds Moses of the covenant that he made and promises to forever honor that covenant. So we're beginning already to see a hint that God makes promises that God intends to keep. Still, these are words. I have to admit, these words are pretty hard not to believe if you happen to be Moses on a mountaintop in the presence of God and you're getting that holy sunburn that he got. I mean, that's a little different. But even for us, these are words, and so how do we know these words are true? Well, we look at the evidence. In another instance, the people you would think had learned their lessons, but they haven't, and so in Exodus 21, they're complaining again. They're complaining because the food hasn't been very good, and they're complaining because Moses isn't taking them where they think they should go, and because God is telling them how to do everything, even tie their own shoelaces, and they really are fed up with God. 
which I suppose is an act of faith in a strange way, but it's kind of a dangerous one if you ask me, because God says, okay, you think you can do this better without my protection? Fine. And at that point, poisonous snakes enter into the camps of the people of the Exodus. And they are plagued by these serpents that bite them and kill them with their poison. And pretty soon they begin to realize they did it again. They shot their mouths off and disrespected God again and disrespected Moses. And so the people look to Moses and say, we've, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed to God. And God said, craft a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if people are bitten by the serpents, they should look to the bronze serpent and they will live. So basically, they disrespected and disregarded God, the very essence of sin, and when they realized their foolishness and the consequences of their foolishness, they repented of their sin and they asked Moses to repent on their behalf. And then God says, fine, put a symbol on a pole and let them look to it and the source of their suffering will become their source of deliverance. That sound like anything else. A cross, maybe. A man on a pole. The source of suffering because of sin becomes the source or sign of deliverance. So God is consistent. And this consistency becomes, I remember watching one of those judge shows that on TV, but it was like the courtroom show and it was like the only one on TV years ago. And, and I remember Judge Wapner said, you know, sometimes I can't gather enough real evidence to make a decision. So I look at the people and I can say, well, you know, this guy really seems to have his act together and seems to have all these details straight and seems like he's got a pretty level head on his shoulders. And this person sounds like a crackpot, doesn't have their act together, doesn't seem to know what they're doing. So I'm going to go with the one that seems more likely to be true. And that's what a judge in human world does. If we're going to judge God's motives, what we're beginning to see here is a consistency in the way that God responds to sin. He lets us suffer the consequences of our sin, but he hears us when we repent. And he delivers us when we repent. And so we're beginning to see that there is a motive driving what God is doing. Because he's so quick to forgive. So quick to show mercy. But so just that he will let punishment come as needs be. Later, Israel as a nation, a theocracy actually, established under God, they would eventually become so full of themselves that they would forget the very God that made them who they are. They would forget the law, they would forget the governance of God's spirit, they would forget all of it, and eventually they would be just pretty much as rotten as all the other big countries around them. And once they put themselves in the ordinary world of ordinary nations, it wasn't long before they were subdued by someone with a more powerful army. And they ended up dispersed all over, lost their temple, lost their kingdom that God had established for them. For the people of Israel not to have a temple was to basically have lost the presence of God. 
We find that difficult to understand, but for them in those days, if you had no dwelling place for God to come and be among you, then God wouldn't show up. And so they really felt that they had cost themselves their relationship with God. They imagined because of this diaspora that God had dismissed them, divorced them, or something like that. And then Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet for his lamentations, gave them this word from God in the midst of their sorrows. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And once again, God is consistent. God is being driven by a particular motive, and God intends for people to be blessed and not to suffer. God intends for people to prosper and not to wither away. Later, we begin to understand that through Jesus, God's intentions are fulfilled completely. But the character of God is still clearly informed by a particular motive. The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, this Pharisee of Pharisees who knows the Old Testament as we would call it inside and out and has a clear understanding of how Christ is the fulfillment of everything that his forefathers believed. He says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, God has constantly faithfully kept God's promises to Abraham and Moses, to the people that they led, and always come back to them with grace and mercy when they would repent of their sin. And now, through Jesus, the reconciliation is complete. Through Jesus, reconciliation is complete. In a relationship that has been severed by divorce, let's say, where somehow the two have come back together and they've reconciled with each other, then they return to the relationship as it was, as it was meant to be, their family again. And so what Romans means to tell us is that God has, through adoption, invited us to be his children because of the reconciliation that Jesus provided for us. Now, why would God do that? Why, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and turned from God, would he then put them into the wilderness but equip them to survive by the death of the innocent animals so that they would be covered with skins 
able to endure what was outside God's total protection. Why would God do that? Why would God constantly maintain a relationship with these people despite their absolute disdain for God as soon as they think they're in control again? In a sermon about John 3.16, you know, the one for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Puritan Thomas Manton says this about that. Love is at the bottom of all. We may give a reason of other things, but we cannot give a reason of his love. God showed his wisdom, power, justice, and holiness in our redemption by Christ. If you ask why he made so much ado about a worthless creature raised out of the dust of the ground at first and had now disordered himself and could be of no use to him, we have an answer at hand because he loved us. If you continue to ask, why did he love us? We have no other answer but because he loved us. For beyond the first rise of things, we cannot go. And the same reason is given even by Moses in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. That is, in short, he loved you because he loved you. All came from his free and undeserved mercy. Higher we cannot go in seeking after the causes of what is done for our salvation. So Thomas Manton says God loves us and there's not a darn thing we can do about it. So we've seen that God's intentions are fulfilled by God's actions. We've seen that wherever God says if, there's a then. And the then is constant as long as the if is constant. If we repent, then God will show mercy. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, a very familiar verse to some of us. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This one gets thrown in our faces all the time by people who are trying to get America to repent. But I'm going to say right now, the only repentance that I care about is mine and yours. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Whenever you do the if, God always does the then. That's causation. And the reason that we can be sure that that will happen is because God's love is the driving motivation. God loves you. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. God's amazing grace is given freely and willingly. But we have the freedom to choose it or reject it. And like any other offer of love, it comes down to whether we can live within its boundaries or not. When a person offers a lifelong love to another, it is understood to be a joining of lives that will require adjustments 
and acceptance of certain liberties. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because I'm telling you that if you are in love with another person and you'd like to spend the rest of your life with them, you will make certain adjustments and they will make certain adjustments. You will acquiesce at certain times and they will acquiesce at certain times and guess what? It won't be torture. It will be because of love that you do these things. Unfortunately, when we invite people into relationship with Jesus, when we ask people to know our God, mostly what they hear is, is that we want them to participate in our religion. And of course, religion is a human invention that is somewhat flawed at times, but always informed by the best of intentions. But if you invite someone to hear and respond to God's love, they're still confronted with a problem that you can't solve for them. And this is why you pray. Because when we decide to love someone who loves us, it means that we're willing to make certain adjustments in our lives. And the very nature of sin is a self-centered nature. It is the idea that I'm more important that my wants and needs are more important. And so when we think of submitting to God's love, it always comes with the expectation that we may have to conform to certain things that God has in mind for us. But if we would return God's love with love, then it wouldn't be any different than a happily married couple seeking to please one another and to adapt each other to each other in a way that makes the two one, as Scripture tells us. There's a reason the Bible frequently speaks of God and especially Jesus as the bridegroom and frequently uses marriage imagery to describe God's love and faithfulness. It is because this is the best example that we can see in our day-to-day -day lives. Mothers and fathers and children and husbands and wives, they are great examples to us of the kind of love that God intends for us, but more intensely than we can even imagine. And so the danger that we all risk when we decide to accept God's love is that in loving God back, we may make sacrifices. But I can tell you as one who has loved much and have been loved much, they never hurt so bad, really. It's actually kind of a pleasure to know that I've adjusted myself for someone I care deeply about. It's a great sense of satisfaction to adapt for the sake of love. And who could be more perfect in the love and adaptation that he gives than our God? our Creator. So there's no regrets about being loved and returning love. Even if it means that we would change certain things about our lives or that we would give up certain bad habits or make certain adjustments. Another Puritan writer wrote this prayer that I close with today as our closing prayer and 
It takes a few minutes, but listen to these beautiful words. O Lord God, who inhabitest eternity, the heavens declare thy glory, the earth thy riches, the universe is thy temple. Thy presence fills immensity, yet thou hast of thy pleasure created life and communicated happiness. Thou hast made me what I am and given me what I have. In thee I live and move and have my being. Thy providence has set the bounds of my habitation and wisely administers all my affairs. I thank thee for thy riches to me in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of him in, my, in thy word, where I behold his person, character, grace, glory, humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Give me to feel a need of his continual saviorhood and cry with Job, I am vile. With Peter, I perish. With the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. Subdue in me the love of sin. Let me know the need of renovation as well as of forgiveness in order to serve and enjoy thee forever. I come to thee in all prevailing name of Jesus with nothing of my own to plead, no works, no worthiness, no promises. I am often straying, often knowingly opposing thy authority, often abusing thy goodness. Much of my guilt arises from my religious privileges, my low esteem of them, my failure to use them to my advantage. But I am not careless of thy favor or regardless of thy glory. Impress me deeply with a sense of thine omnipresence that thou art about my path, my ways, my lying down, even my end. Amen.